0: Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Kornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie.
1: Welcome to episode 40 of Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron and my co-host is Kate Lorie. As promised, In Season 3 of Open Deeply, we're broadening our horizons to include topics like plant medicine. And I can't think of a better guest to start us off in this new terrain than the effervescent Dr. Kat Meyer. She's a licensed psychotherapist specializing in sex trauma and Ketamine Assisted Therapy, an author, yoga teacher, and international speaker dedicated to evolving the relationship we have surrounding sexuality and our bodies. Dr. Kat is the founder of SexLoveYoga.com, an online platform integrating various schools of thought, including science. Tantra, yoga, psychedelic therapy, and psychology designed to help people create a deeply fulfilling, prosperous, relational, and sexual life. As an expert and published researcher on the topic of sexual health, Dr. Kat sees clients in her private practice office in Beverly Hills and leads workshops, lectures, and retreats internationally. Dr. Kat is also the host of the podcast, Love, Sex, and Psychedelics, and Erotically Wasted. Also author of the book, Sex, Love, Yoga, and co-founder of un dot done women's sensual yoga experience but before we get started i need to remind you that open deeply podcast is made for entertainment and informational desires only the podcast any opinions we share and any resources including social media and emails from us are not therapy medical care or professional advice and don't create a patient client relationship None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own, and if you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 9888, or go to your nearest emergency center. Now we hope you enjoy the show.
2: Kat, I am so glad to have you on here. And I have loved our conversations about sex and psychedelics. You're such a yummy, sensual person that doesn't hide any part of you and just brings it all forth. You have this amazing podcast called Sex, Love, and Psychedelics. And due to my own ecstatic experiences, I believe that the pussy can be a portal to trance states, ecstatic states, and the divine. Similarly, I believe plant medicine can be a portal to drastic reality shifts or ecstatic experiences that can be life-changing both have been suppressed by the powers that be. I know you have a great reverence for both sex and psychedelics. Reverence is like water and sunlight. It allows things to grow. What do you feel has come with this reverence that you have for both sex and psychedelics?
3: Oh, I love that statement. Reverence is like sunlight and water. Like, Yeah. I see reverence as this Deep respect and honoring of the power and the influence that something can have of us. If we apply that to the pussy, you know, there's the the deep like bowing at the power (laughs) of the pussy, this ability to create and invoke energetic orgasm and transformation. I mean, I'm just now thinking about all these mythological stories around the pussy flashing you know the practice of pussy flashing and and there's several different stories across different cultures around different goddesses and um, i think Kali is one of them And I'm blanking. There's one in Egypt as well. Oh, in the Greek mythos too, of flashing your pussy as a way to stun everybody into (laughs) reverence again, you know, whether there was chaos going on or whether there was debauchery or whether there was just fighting going on. And this woman would flash her pussy in order to calm everyone down, which is really cool to think about. Maybe that's why they make us cover up because they they realize the power (laughs) of our pussy, <laughs> they don't want us flashing it and calming everybody down.
2: No. <laughs> One of my favorite things to say is that everything is backwards. And a lot of times the people and the things that are suppressed are actually the most powerful. That's amazing about pussy flashing. I haven't ever thought about that.
1: I'm like, how can I incorporate that into everything? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, consensually and all. But yeah, yeah, my my wheels are going. Oh, that's amazing. And there's also, you know, to tie this in with psychedelics, psychedelics also have this power to be able to transform us or to bring up our deepest pain, our deepest wounds, or to even reveal to us aspects of ourselves that we may be hiding due to shame or hiding due to the protection of our psyche. So our psyche doesn't short circuit because of the intensity of the power of, you know, whether it was trauma or past distressing experience or otherwise. So both of these have this power to transform us. Both of these have the power to really bring us to our knees literally (laughs) and figuratively. And so how are we taking care of these with conscious awareness with preparation, with learning about them, learning about how to approach and utilize the power. In a way that doesn't cause us harm you know the pussy can cause us harm just as much as the psychedelic can cause us harm but it can also break us into oblivion to redefine us (laughs) redefine ourselves
2: you know on that note i think about set and setting you know that you always hear the term set and setting related to psychedelics your mindset and the setting that you're in but i think that can apply to sex too you know and when you think about set and setting being in place when you're about to have sex i mean i think that so often can lead to good experiences but also if you really know what you're doing you can you know have ecstatic experiences
3: absolutely yeah i mean there's so many overlaps of sex and psychedelics and when we're thinking about creating a concept of a container you know a container is something that is a holding structure for us to feel safe in, you know, if we think of container as characterized by presence and structure, holding, yeah, holding environments, strength, of different types. yeah, holding environment, yeah. And then for us to feel safe enough to be able to unravel or safe enough to go into full expression or energy or vibrancy, movement, big emotions. If our container doesn't feel solid, there isn't a depth of presence, there isn't the attune. There isn't that holding structure. We're going to feel that in our nervous system when we're not going to be able to unravel. We're not going to be able to have this full expression of our eroticism, of our body, of our orgasm. And same thing with psychedelics. If there is not a strong container, say whether it's our facilitator's attention is split or there's people coming in and out of the space or there isn't a proper setup as in somebody telling us what to expect or preparation about the medicine that we're about to experience, then that's not going to feel safe. And so in either of those situations, we're not going to be able to fully let go. We're not going to be able to surrender. And surrender is such an important aspect of psychedelics. The reason why we can break down some of these deeply ingrained constructs in our psyche is because we feel safe enough to go there and challenge them. But we can't if we don't feel that somebody's there or there's too much noise or we're at a festival and we can't let go and to what the psychedelic is asking us to be able to do. And then going back to sex, that just kind of
2: reminds me of the time that I was first able to have an ecstatic experience during sex where I combined holotropic breathwork with sex. And you could argue, yeah, I've smoked a little weed when I've had sex, that sort of thing. But something about allowing yourself to go into a full ecstatic experience as you can with breathwork really takes a lot of trust. And again, it had to be that set and setting, including the partner I chose to allow myself to go to that level that I had never gone to before. Mm -hmm. Right. It's really interesting. It's what you're capable of, what the body is capable of.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how much we take these things really too lightly. I, I think Yeah, you know, we're approaching psychedelics as, I mean, there's nothing wrong with recreational substance use. I you know, celebrate. Yay. Woo. <laughs> it just is, you know, again, if you don't have the reverence for it, then you find yourself in a situation where if you don't have the tools to be able to be introspective or how to regulate your own nervous system or have a resource of community to support you or a safe place to, go and escape to so that you're not in the middle of all this stimulation, then it can create a very scary experience for us and sometimes re-traumatize us. So that's why I'm a big advocate and I do my own work with ketamine-assisted therapists and studying more around MDMA and psilocybin. That type of therapy creates a holding space for you to be able to go into and fully unravel, knowing that somebody's got you, somebody's with you, somebody, hopefully, who's trained in being able to Hold your projections without engaging into it and falling into it. Hold your transference of falling in love with you or seeing you therapist as a mom and not like going into that. But they can just hold that for you so that you can be in your own chaotic little bubble.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Before I started getting into learning about this, I would just hear transference between a therapist and a, you know, and a client or whatever. And I really think that that is, I don't know, 5% of what you can kind of experience when somebody comes back from a psychedelic journey. Sometimes the ability of the person holding space is so much more important. I th- Well, they're both important, but it really takes a skilled person to be able to hold that space. And I appreciate that more than ever.
3: Yeah. To emphasize again, the reverence and then the people who are holding it. Like I love that there's the rebels out there who are you know, the ayahuasca facilitators. And I love that. I want to support that. However, there also needs to be a lot, a lot of training around this. And so the reverence, even as somebody who's holding that position of power, because it is a position of power and it can be abused. And so even teaching people who are seeking psychedelics for healing to know for yourself how to vet for practitioners to work with, or even to know that the isn't a shaman is not your therapist, a guardian, an angel, an assistant to any sort of psychedelic ceremony experience, also is not your therapist to hold all of this that's coming up for you. We're blasted wide open. Our hearts, our energy. There's this intense urge to make change or to connect with somebody or to fall into divine union and love with another person. And These people are not trained for that. We don't need to make them that. It's super enticing to make them that. It's super enticing for them to be that. (laughs) But we also just need time to integrate and allow this energy to settle before we And perhaps having an integration therapist like yourself, Kate, to be able to hold that space for somebody to process there, I think is what we need. We need more of that in this culture, how to tie those pieces together.
1: Yeah. Now you brought up power and I've had the sense that you probably had a bit of a hero's journey with power. So I would love to hear about your mythic journey with power, starting from, you know, what you experienced as a child to where you are now and like some of the really impactful transformative things in between.
3: Oh, good Lord. Sonny, how much time we got? Oh, this is a three-day podcast. (laughs) Great. What's time? It's whatever. Yeah. God, you know, I love that question. I love the hero's journey. I love mythos. I love archetypical work. And I want to tie that to psychedelics too, because psychedelics speaks in symbols. Psychedelics are not literal (laughs) most of the time it's not literal it is poetry it is symbols it is mythos it is archetypical work and so that's why integration is so important for us to sit with and go through i love living life in a very poetic framework you know and and connecting with symbols all around us i think it's a very beautiful way to make this very logical minded (laughs) production oriented life into one that's beautiful and bright So my hero's journey, in a nutshell, when I was younger, I experienced some sexual violation that led to a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. And I didn't have the support system to be able to help me through that. So a lot of it, I had to self-resource. And as a child, I self-resourced through eating disorders and through suicide ideation and, and through, you know, all these mechanisms that I see now from my work of like, how these are aspects of myself that was just trying to help me to be able to survive the depth of the pain that I was in. Yeah, I really struggled with connections with people. I was afraid of everything, but I wasn't even aware of that. So I had a deeply intricate defense mechanism on my body of disconnecting from it. You know, I disassociated a lot. Relationships, I had a pattern of relationships lasting about two weeks before I would have a panic attack. And then bluntly end it. And I did that all through high school and into college. I was 18 when I discovered yoga. And that was the first time I remember the very first class that I went to. And I was laying there and I felt calm in my body and I felt safe in my body. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, this feels really good. (laughs) So that started this motivation to go down this more healing path of what else is there? So I studied yoga. I started teaching it when I was about 19, 20. It was a gateway drug for me, (laughs) but I was still dissociating. I was still having issues with relationships and sex in particular. If it started moving that direction, started becoming physically intimate, I would end the relationship instantly. I would freeze. I would end it confused many, many a person at that time. And then I was 21 when I was reading Red Book Magazine and they quoted a sex therapist. And I was like, oh, you can do that? You You can be that? And I had never had sex before. (laughs) I had never even pulled around. But it was in that moment that I decided that that's what I was going to be. So I applied to doctoral schools in California, moved out here, and I literally dove into everything. I started doing Tantra immersions and and it was all chanting and touch, you know, like breathing. It was all the non-sexual aspect. Of Tantra. And then I started studying ASECT through getting my ASECT training, American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And in the SARS program, you know, was introduced to BDSM and I was hooked. I felt so seen (laughs) in that space. I was like, oh, I'm kinky? Yes! (laughs) (laughs) It was such a freeing aspect. I remember showing up at the dungeon and wearing a bodysuit with lace on it. And I was so hyper vigilant of everything and everything around me. And then that was my first, like, I just leaned in. I just kept leaning in. I was like, let's try this. Let's do this. And it was this awakening moment of, I can wear lingerie, first of all. And then second of all, I enjoy flogging. I enjoy electric play. Like first timer, probably should not have gone through trying all the things that I did. <laughs> because afterward, I went through a, a, a hard crash, a hard emotional after crash, physiologically and emotionally. But it was, yeah, I tried, it. everything was given to me. And I was like, okay, this is what I where I want to be. And so diving into that, that's amazing. So that SAR, the sexual attitude reassessment,
2: that was because I was there watching that. I, Holy you know, shit. with you and Mr. Aragon, I was there for that. Yeah,
3: that's right. That's when we met. That was like eight years ago, nine years ago, 10 years. I don't know.
2: You look very sweet and innocent, but you looked completely happy in that <laughs> scene. You volunteered <laughs> sure and was. you went up to the front of the room in front of all these therapists and had this whole scene with Master Aragon and you just looked just so happy.
3: Yeah, Yeah. Who knew that getting (laughs) smacked was going (laughs) to literally (laughs) bring me to life? I don't know. Yeah. That's the first Uh, time we met, I think. It was. Yeah. Our friendiversary 10 years ago. I was 24 or 25 at the time. Mm -hmm. That's so cool that I got to witness that. (laughs) Yeah. You witnessed my sexual awakening. (laughs) Uh,
2: So kind of transitioning a little bit. You know, trance states can be achieved many ways, including BDSM subspace. Yeah. Or psychedelic spaces or breathwork meditations. And I wonder if there's a time that you've ever experienced or heard of from someone else where they combine two different modes of achieving a trance space together to create something next level. I wonder if anything like that comes to mind.
3: Oh, that's such a good question. So in my studying of Tantra and BDSM at the time, and this was before I was doing psychedelics, I think I did one psilocybin journey in my early twenties, but both of those communities really had a lot of judgment of the other one. I would hear from my Tantra community that, you know, people in BDSM, they were traumatized. They were something fucked up around them. They were, it was all dark. It was devil worship. It was what, what anyway, <laughs> there's, that's bad. That's the bad stuff. That's the shadow. Right. And then the BDSM, it was a lot of, oh, the Tantra people, they're, they're so woo woo. They're so like into themselves. They think they're better than us. They think, you know, it's all performance. None of it is real, you know, and it wasn't until later that people started to get curious about that or, started to ask me questions, or I started to to meet other practitioners who are also combining the two because trance states happen in both of them. You know, Tantra, there is a lot of breath. There is a lot of movement and sound and, and finding rhythm. So there's some great research on connecting the concept of rhythmic entrainment and orgasm. And so that theory is that The more that we can get our biological system in a rhythm, you know, connecting all the thousands of rhythms that happen inside of us with rhythms that exist outside of us, including partners, can increase this till we hit a point of threshold that we tip over into orgasm. So we experience that with, you know, when you go to raves and you have the music and the music builds up and you see everybody, they're starting to tense up and they're just getting really low. And then the beat drops and everybody just loses their fucking shit. And they're all over the place like an orgasm, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And same with in BDSM, you know, you get into the rhythm of the flogging and you get into, you know, your own breath and then it's building and then smack. And then it's that release after the the impact can put you over or with rope, like a really good rope scene where somebody is holding the container aspect. Here's that the reference of the container with the presence and with their ability to ground and find resonance with you and encourage you and hold you in that space so you can unravel and drop into surrender and be in more of a lucid state too. So again, that's to give you an outline of all these things, but then I've seen people bringing in, and I bring in, breath work, facilitating breath work with some of the impact play and teach people how you can bring people into those more orgasmic states of or ecstatic trance states. <sighs> yeah, I think... Even in the psychedelic space. Yeah, I think I'm just thinking of all these different ways and how they weave. Ah. Yeah, and I think it's
2: time to do that. I mean, like you were suggesting the book Radical Ecstasy by Dosie Easton and Janet Hardy. They wrote that a long time ago, and I think the time is now for people to read that book because people are more delving into the idea of how these things can cross over. And then also on Joshua Shry's podcast, The Emerald, he talks about... The importance of trance states and he says that you know before the agricultural revolution before the right-wing religion kind of mucked everything up the way people healed across the globe was through trance states that they healed trauma through trance and i've gotten more and more fascinated with it
3: yeah drumming is another great example of trance like really things that create rhythm can drop into that trance state and so whether it's breath, whether it's sensation, whether it's you know even our own bodily movement rhythm with another person, ecstatic dance is a great example of that. You can be dancing for two hours and you're allowing your body to move in, or longer in its own natural states. And it brings on this really strong trance state. There's also... These sun dances that happen in Mexico and in other parts of North America, but it's a Native American or heritage of like three days in a row of dancing, no food, no water. They're just dancing under the sun into the night and they're enter into these deep trance states. And I'll speak to this because this is, I was fascinated by this, but there's also some of the individuals who are hanging by hooks and dancing. So that's even another form of trance, you know, putting your body in a state of trauma, that it's releasing all these endorphins into the body so that your body can sustain the trauma. But it is a very high state physiologically and mentally.
2: Yeah, and with hooks, you hear about that in BDSM. You also hear it in indigenous American cultures and all that. And it's all to achieve either subspace or trance or a spiritual experience. It's, It's all fascinating. This idea that you could be careful about how you use pain in order to get to trance. Or even when people die, a lot of times they have the pain of death. And on the other side of that, they experience an ecstatic experience, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Y'all are in my like, geeky space. I'm in like the info trance of BDSM. And you know, yeah, I love this conversation. I want to hear more about your experiences with BDSM. Because you've talked about being a dom and a sub, you started out as a sub. I would love to know, how and when you discovered your inner Dom?
3: Oh, I know the exact moment. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I was at Torture Garden in Los Angeles and this man approached me in one of my girlfriends and super gorgeous French man. I was like, oh, just super hoty." And he comes up to me and I was wearing these giant boots like super tall platform, buckled up boots. And he goes, do you trample with those? And in my head, I go, I don't dom, you know, like I, I don't take charge, but what came out of my mouth was yes. (laughs) And And I took my foot and I pushed him up and against the wall. And I just ordered him onto the couch. I said, get on the couch. And so he, like big eyed, like he looked like this kid who just discovered like a lollipop. <laughs> and he laid down on the couch and I stepped on top of him and I pointed to my girlfriend and I was like, come here. And I ordered her on top. And so we're trampling him and I'm sticking the heel into his jaw and I'm turning his head and I'm saying, yeah, you like that. And then I just, the words are flowing out of my mouth. I don't even know what's happening, but I'm just in this full, whether you want to call it channeling, you know, just accessing And I'm embodying this archetype of a dom and just like a very dirty, very directive, very, I felt so much courage and confidence in my body. And then I'm directing the two of them and I'm making them kiss and I'm telling them a dirty story because I love fantasy. I love fantasy speaking fantasy. I write my own erotic stories on my podcast, Erotically Wasted. So it was just flowing out of my mouth what I was this whole story and fantasy. And then I was getting other women to come over and trample on them too. And this dude was so wet. Like he was so hard. I was I was just Very proud of my inner Dom. And after that, it almost like it created a reference point for me. And since then, I've always been able to tap into that frequency ever since. And I've not had, when I say I'm in that space, it just clicks on and everything flows. And it reminded me too of how even in psychedelic space and in sex space, like really all of this is psychedelic, life is psychedelic. It can take us one reference point. For us to be able to access and bring the in then into our body. Kate would know this too, because she does EMDR as well. In EMDR, we do resourcing, and resourcing is taking some of these past reference points or memories and embodying what it was like to be that, because your nervous system remembers. It just takes us imprinting, meaning bringing the conscious awareness into those memories and bringing the sensory experiences from those memories into the now for us to be able to access these other parts of ourselves. I would say that transformed it for me. And since then, I would say me and play with other women and non-binary, I can access that more naturally, I would say it turns on quicker without me even saying that's what I'm going to do. And then with men, I need more of an invitation for that role to be present. So that's an interesting thought that I'm just clicking.
2: It's funny how different BDSM brings out different parts of you, you know, like the times that I've been invited to trample. It kind of brought out this naughty little girl in me, you know, yes. like, you know, <laughs> like I kind of just like feeling giggly and naughty and to them, they looked at me like this big powerful dom, but inside of myself, I was like, "He, you know, and having fun," <laughs> you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and also, you know, BDSM, I think it brings out different parts of us in a different way in the sense that to me, it's especially in the dom role, it really allows me to be creative. With the sub role, I like to just let go and just, you know, go into a trance state, but being in the dom role is so creative. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And the consciousness, the, the sacredness of kink, too, really reminds us that we can tap into parts of ourselves that we might not otherwise either feel safe enough to embody or we might be a shadow aspect of ourselves. So for me, I had always struggled with power. I didn't want other people to feel less than me. I wanted people to feel loved or feel like on equal grounds with me. So for me to then take power and say, I'm telling you what to do, or I am recognizing that I am a powerful person here was an edge for me. Or even the concept of submission, Letting somebody do things to me from a place of consent and playing out the role of being small, playing out the role of being powerless. I would say, you know, in my life, yeah, I don't want to be small in this world, but how does that play out unconsciously in my career, you know, and in the times where I was like, oh, I'm a small fish in a big pond right now, you know, but kink is like, well, let's play that out. Let's consciously choose that role play out smallness here. So it's not something that's unconsciously ruling me in my everyday life, but I get to, I give it an outlet. Mm -hmm. And then I realize my power in that.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I mentioned the Emerald a lot. In one of his episodes, he has an episode on war and he basically said that it used to be that men could act out their aggressive impulses through trance. And then he said, If they don't have an avenue to act it out, like through trance, obviously BDSM is an obvious example, they'll be drawn to war. When they're experiencing war, they will get to have the violence. They'll be able to have the band of brothers experience. They'll be able to have ecstasy. And so if you don't have a way to funnel that shadow side of yourself into something like trance, then that's the kind of thing that happens. So I completely hear you on that. That's amazing. Yeah. So... Slightly switching. Oh, switchy?
3: You said switchy? who? Oh. <laughs> so let's hey. negotiate real quick
2: here. I'm all about switching. I'm all about switching. <laughs> Lately, I've been thinking about internal family systems theory might help integration after a psychedelic experience. And I'm also thinking about how internal family systems can help us navigate hard feelings related to non-monogamy. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about either.
3: I have lots of thoughts. So I use internal family systems in my own practice, both with ketamine and not. Also, the founder of internal family systems, Richard Swartz, even talks in his book on for couples about how MDMA naturally invokes parts communication. So I see it often in the psychedelic work that I'm doing with people because there is an internal dialogue that you have with yourself. You become introspective. You realize that there are voices inside of you that sometimes are in conflict with one another, and so internal family system says, "Hey, let's bring conscious awareness to these parts. Let's recognize that they each have their own personalities, their own perspectives, their own solutions on how to take care of you. These parts all have their own ages at different times in our life. Where distressing moments created like a frozenness and form." these parts. And so we go into a psychedelic space and all of that comes forward. We're faced with ourself. We're internal. We sit, reflect, we listen. And so we can more easily develop that. And again, Richard Schwartz saw this MDMA, natural. We have a natural tendency towards parts communication. And so it just blends super well with then being able to integrate, okay, what parts did you meet when you were in the ayahuasca space? What is it that they want you to see and understand? What are they afraid would happen if they continue or if they don't keep doing this pattern of avoidance or of running away or ending relationships? What is it afraid would happen if they stop that or eating all this food?
2: I'm curious about a a quick question. Like if a couple is doing MDMA, and let's say one partner in the couple is not the best person, maybe he's done a lot of harm in the relationship. Is there a danger that if they do MDMA together, like in a couple's therapy session, if that became legal and all that good stuff, that the person that was being abused might end up being unduly bonded to that person through the MDMA? Like, could it do some harm?
3: That's an excellent question. I think we're still discovering what the ethics are around, you know, who and when to have these psychedelic experiences because you're absolutely right when is the appropriate time to do a psychedelic so right now i'm running a a survey that i opened to the public since september and i have over 550 people who've taken the survey and some of the people who've been sharing their stories have said you know we took mdma too soon in our relationship And yeah, I felt the falling in love with this person only to find out later that they weren't a right fit for me or that this person wasn't actually caring for my heart. So I think that there, again, these are people who are just taking MDMA or psychedelics together recreationally or for their own experiences. It doesn't have the foundation of psychotherapy, which I think is a really, really important aspect to psychedelics, even more than just going to academy and clinic. Having assisted therapy around it is what makes it even more beneficial. So I think it's important for people to go through. You know, if, if there's abuse in the relationship, I think initial therapy is what you need to do first. Although I have seen individuals with, and this is from integration, the individuals who went and did a an ayahuasca ceremony, and the partner had disorganized attachment. And so they had more of the manipulation and the attacks aspect of it. And after the ayahuasca ceremony, they realized how much pain they were causing their partner. They realized how much they had self-awareness that wasn't there before. And that actually motivated them to start going down this path of healing and going into doing self-development seminars and things like that. So that is possible. However, we have to remember that psychedelics aren't the panacea and the The, oh, you take one, and then now I have self enlightenment, and now the issues aren't there. Our patterns are like years and years and years in the making, (laughs) and and it's hard to change patterns. So it's going to take a while for somebody who has deeply ingrained fear or patterns of of abuse or attacking the other person, whether through manipulation or guilt or blame. That's going to take a while. First of all, it's not going to be one MDMA session. It's may not even be three. It's going to be consistent life change. And I've also seen where psychedelics have had the effect of increasing narcissism. So for some people, when you do psychedelics, there is an experience of conviction and some people coming back and reporting, I know the truth, truth with a capital T. I have experienced God and I know how the world works. It can be groundwork for, you know, supporting narcissism. So some, somebody has more of those tendencies of grandiosity, you know, psychedelics can increase that.
2: I knew ayahuasca could do that. MDMA can do that
3: as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. It's a very good question. Research is still really new about all of this. I think right now, most of what we have is anecdotal.
2: It's interesting. There's so much possibility though.
3: So much possibility. And that's why we have the reverence with this because there's a lot of unknown and unpredictability. And so we want to do the best that we can to, again, create the container to support any chaos or unpredictability, but there's also just things that happen. (laughs) We just do our best and yeah. So the grandiosity, that is a possibility of happening. But I've also read studies where people's personality disorders changed to where it makes it more pliable for that to change. So we're still in the inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. Humbling, humbling inquiry
1: hmm. So I would like to know, you know, like in any novel story, you have the foreshadowing of, you know, what's to come later for you, for your journey and your life back in childhood. Even what was that one moment that maybe you didn't realize at the time, but looking back, you're like, oh, this is the thing that told me I would pick, become sex and psychedelic expert professionally. <laughs>
3: Oh God, I don't know. I guess there's been a few things. So I told you about that moment where I realized, okay, sex therapy from reading the Red Book Magazine. Then I think I was 25. I met somebody who does Reiki work. Reiki is a Japanese energetic healing modality. And at that point, I was still actively eating disorder- I was teaching yoga. I was had multiple sexual violations since then. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. And I was not in my body. And so I met this man who... Wanted to do a trade. If I taught yoga and he would do, he was a professional masseuse and, and Reiki practitioner. He had some of the sweetest energy I've ever experienced. Just clean, clean, soft, so sweet. We started that exchange. I taught yoga and he would do the massage. I had never had a professional massage before. And I was so tense and tight in my body and hypervigilant every, everywhere his hand went. And then every week we would do this And I would slowly become more and more relaxed into my body. And after doing this for, I think, a month and a half, I asked him for a session just Reiki because I wanted to know the difference. And so he did a session and just hovering his hands and, and I could feel warmth and I could feel buzzing in my body and after it i sat up and i felt really drunk and and out of it and i was like whoa i feel really weird and and he was like yeah you haven't been in your body for a really long time and then proceeded to tell me all these things about myself that i hadn't told anybody except my therapist Everything from the sexual violations to not being in my body, to masking, to patterns of, and I just was floored. That was a realization that healing for me, you know, I'm studying, I'm in a doctorate program, I'm teaching yoga and all of this is physical and mental and emotional, but now there's this energetic aspect of healing. And so bless this angel. He took me on as an apprentice for two years. I studied energy. I studied Reiki. And so that transformed the way I did therapy with clients. It transformed the way I conceptualized how healing happens. And there's this interconnectedness of the belief structures, the emotions, the physical body, the energetic body, and even how that then tied with my experiences in psychedelics, even seeing energy move through my body and realize, you know, on that level, how much I was dissociating and how much fear I held in my body. So I've got these moments of insight and clarity, but I think there's several of those that would be the compilation of realizing how I was going to integrate the sex work, the sex therapy work with the psychedelics, seeing how all of that unraveled for me and across these psychedelic experiences in ayahuasca and seeing, oh, okay. Okay. And then reverse engineering those processes to be able to make sense out of it for somebody to digest. Concepts of self love, concept of embodiment, concepts of compassion are all complex concepts that we try to make simple on an Instagram post and say, just love yourself. But that's really fucking hard. (laughs) <laughs> you know in this culture of like you know or or body love, like do you do you realize how many steps need to happen before you can love your body like it's not e- as easy as jumping from that you can reach that state in ayahuasca, maybe, but then how do you integrate that, and so I had to reverse engineer that process for myself to then to be able to relay that to clients and students mm. wow, wow, yeah,
2: yeah. And so I wanted to ask you one other question. I've heard you mention the book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, and I've since then read it. And in it, she talks about the death cycles that we all have across our lives. And I'm wondering if you can speak on this concept and why that concept of the death cycles and run with the wolves resonates so deeply for you.
3: You know, it's interesting. God, I love that. Yeah. So this book is full of a lot of folklore and mythos. The author is a psychologist who breaks down the symbolism in each of those stories. And it's just like, oh, it's so drool worthy. So this concept of death. Yeah. We have these different chapters in our life of who we are at that particular time. And we embody again, you know, this is kind of like parts conversation of where we embody these specific perspectives or ways of living or doing and acting in the world. And and then we can have an experience that causes a shaking of the internal working model of how we've seen the world or operated in the world. And we either have to surrender that part of us you know, or let that uh, rework that or re-narrate that internal construct, put down that the burden of that belief and step into a new way of being, or we have to break up with whatever thing is causing us to question that in order to maintain that construct. So thinking of Relationships, you know, the concept of relationships, a committed relationship goes through so many death cycles if you decide to lean into the death, the process of letting something go in order to keep the relationship. But that means the relationship might have to die as it was in order to make space for the two or three or whoever's in that relationship to evolve and to grow as you need to. So, a good example of that is when a fair happens in a relationship, your world is turned upside down. Now it may not feel as safe as it was before. We were in a bliss of trust and now that it's all rattled, you can either break up and end and death out, have a death of that relationship to go on different relationships, or you can have a death to the relationship as it was, figure out what wasn't working, what needs to be nourished. and. What the two of you are stepping into as a Tammy Nelson would say, a new monogamous, new relationship, new new set of the relationship, new agreements, new perspectives, new ways of interacting with one another and supporting the growth of the other person. And then we do that in our own selves. Like I've had moments in some cultures, they call it the dark night of the soul. You know, these periods of your life where there's so much pain, so much darkness, so much heaviness, distressing event after distressing event happens. And you can either crumble beneath it or at some point you are done crumbling and you step into this internal strength. That you have, you develop an inner resource, you develop a solution that was sourced from within you or inspired from outside of you that is then taken internally to you to evolve into a new aspect of yourself, a part of yourself that you haven't seen before these death cycles are an important process to also honor. I have clients who come into my office and and I tease that it's like they have a drawer, the junk drawer. We all have one at our house that literally has random rubber bands and pencils and, and all these things. And if we've not gone through that, it's just a mess in that drawer. So similar in our life, if we haven't paused, taken a pause to process the trauma, to process those death cycles, then we're just a compilation of all this unprocessed stored junk in here that we need to tease apart and pay homage to and recognize what we learned, what we gained from those experiences in order for us to update the image of who we are today hmm. Absolutely.
1: Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah, I am just like, it's funny when you said one juncture, I'm like, one, just one juncture? <laughs> How many junctures does my heart have? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this has been just my mind is gonna be chewing on this conversation for a long time, as I'm sure it will for listeners. I would love to know what you have going on. Do you have courses like what? Tell us about that
3: yeah, yeah. I do all kinds of things. So I have my podcast, sex love psychedelics. And to me, it's really, really important to be able to reach people at all levels of financial ability for healing or answers. I've always created that in all everything that I do. Podcasts is easy for everybody to access. I have some online programs that people can access on demand, some around sensuality. All of them are trauma informed, some of them for, Eroticism, erotic expression. I just completed a live course called Sex Low Psychedelics. And so it was all around the concepts around harm reduction practices around psychedelics and using sexual practices and how to support you in in those spaces. I'll be coming up this fall, I'll be releasing another course using on how sex can be psychedelics. So it's infusing Tantra and BDSM along with some of the sex therapy practices that I do to help people facilitate psychedelic experiences for themselves without psychedelics. This summer, I have a live retreat called Love and Leather, and that's infusing Tantra with BDSM as well with Colette Pervet, who's a pro-dominatrix and, and incredible, incredible human being. <laughs> and then I also do retreats and we'll be launching some ketamine assisted retreats for couples and individuals in the LA area. Very
2: cool. Yeah, that is a lot. I'll have to say, I'm, I'm so glad you came on Kat and there's so many things that I love about you. What I love about you, just like either on Instagram or even at a lunch with you, where you're just like so fun and playful. You know, your Instagram is hilarious. For anybody who has not checked out your Instagram, they should because you're so freaking funny.
3: Thank you at Sex Love Yoga. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Sex
2: Love Yoga. And you know, I think another thing I I love about you is just several things. One, you took your pain from your earlier years, and you transmuted into this ecstatic life. I mean, your life is pretty damn ecstatic in comparison to where you started, right? And I think you model so many good things for people in terms of showing people how they can integrate things into their life, showing them how they can let go of what doesn't serve them, and how as you shift and change, you can really have this amazing life. And you integrate so many different aspects of yourself as a public persona, you know, your intellectual side, your sexual side, your playful side. You don't see that very many times with like, say, therapists. It's really rare to see a therapist that is as authentic. That seems like a weird thing to say, but you know... (laughs) A lot of therapists get taught to do this kind of blank screen and they're not as blank as they were, but still, I think you're one of the most, what you see is what you get therapists that are out there on social media, et cetera, that people can have access to and learn from. And again, I think one of the main powers of that is the things you say are important, but the things you model are really important. And the fact that you've been able to achieve this much at this young of an age, like you're young and you have achieved so much. It's very impressive.
3: That's one of my parts that was a perfectionist. So, you know, we think that part and we're also done with that part. (laughs) We don't have to do that. It's a trait, right? It's like, let's (laughs) keep
2: the good part of the trait and fade out the bad part of the trait. Right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. We're finding more balance.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I think you're wonderful. I think you're doing great things. I think the people that decide to check out your course are going to benefit greatly for it. Yeah, I hope everyone listening has enjoyed this episode and that you will continue to dare to open deeply.
0: Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Larie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.